Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ted Cupper. And today we're asking the question, is technology accelerating? Which on the surface might seem like a fairly abstract question, but we feel that it's very important. Well, you know, if you're somebody who's been reading our blog, declineofscarcity.com, you probably don't even need to listen to us go through this question. You probably uh, know what you think about it. Uh, but we thought this would be a good way to introduce what we want to do on the podcast, which is to uh, to talk about things uh, to a pretty wide audience. So we thought it was important that everybody sort of consider and agree on this basic question of, you know, is technological progress accelerating or not? Because if I was trying to pinpoint the single issue that seems to get me into disagreements the most with uh, people... With lay uh, folks. Yeah, with relatives and, and casual friends. Yeah, people eating at bars. What's my, you know, my difference of perspective originates from what I believe to be possible in the short term is a lot greater than what seems to be common sense among most people. And partly that's because I do feel that technology is accelerating. Uh, although actually making that case is a little more challenging than just saying it. So that's part of what we're going to be talking about today. Right. So I think we should just mention before we go on that you know most people associate this, this idea, if they think about it at all, with a guy named Ray Kurzweil, who's a well-known futurist and uh, an inventor. And he, about 15 years ago, published a book that, that posited this idea that uh, there's a law of accelerating returns. Um, it's not like a scientific law. It's like uh, an observation like Moore's law is, where he's saying he's observed, you know, according to his metrics, that technology just gets faster and faster with each passing year at an uh, exponential, or he calls double exponential rate. Uh, that The rate itself is accelerating. And I think the way that Kurzweil himself describes uncovering this law, whether or not you believe it's a law, was because he, as an inventor, was had a practical goal of producing things so that by the time you, know, you start a long project, by the time it's done, you want to make sure that it's still relevant and isn't already obsolete and still has a market. Um, so he felt the need to predict future trends. But I feel like that actually applies potentially to all of our lives now. So if you're going to do any long-term decision, if you're going to go to school for four years, uh, have a kid. if you're going to have a kid, if you're going to get married, if you're going to move to another city, all these life changes, you kind of need to game out how is the environment going to change 5, 10, 15, even 20 years out? And so I think while an inventor really hits against this problem very directly, I, I think this is applicable to everybody. Yeah, I agree. So today we're, we're just going to talk about our, our argument that technology is accelerating, basically. We, we are on that side of this argument, and we're going to go through sort of three major ways of making the argument. We're going to try to make a, a subjective argument we're going to find the limits of that. We're going to try to make a more empirical argument, uh, looking at economic metrics and, and counting things and, and looking at the power of computing. And uh, then we're going to try to make a, a more logical argument that technology sort of has to accelerate. And, uh, and that's, that's, those are the perspectives we're going to look at today. So we'll just get right into it. On a subjective level, uh, to you and I, I think it's pretty clear, it feels like Technology is accelerating. In our short lives, we've only been here 30 years, we've seen waves of technology, personal computing, mobile computing. You know, when I was 13, there was no Google. When I was 15, there was. I feel like it was a completely different world. Yeah, just the, the number of things that I remember from my childhood that are already obsolete 
uh, right. the number Walkmans, of, video game systems. Yes. And, and just, I think, you know, the, the internet obviously is the monstrous landmark, but I mean, smartphones are there as well. Mm-hmm. And there's a bunch of things that seem on just on the cusp right now. We have a lot of this augmented reality technology, the Google glasses. Right. We have some, finally some decent virtual reality technology. Like the Oculus Rift. Uh, we have the self-driving cars, which aren't perfected yet. No, but they're out there driving, and it's we can see that it's going to be something that we'll have in the future. Uh, so to us, it feels like, wow, things really are accelerating. Even like within a 30-year time frame, I feel like there's been more change in the last 15 years of my life than in the first 15 years of yeah, my life. Yeah, definitely. But that's just a feeling. That's mm-hmm. a subjective argument. It doesn't really... You know, you might feel differently. A yeah, lot of well, people certainly do. So, yeah, some pretty prominent people feel like sort of the opposite way, right? Peter Thiel, who's well-known, has this quote. Do you have it in front of you? Peter Thiel is famous for having this quip where he says, uh, we wanted flying cars and all we got was 140 characters. Right. And, of course, we know what he means by that, which is he finds the innovations of the Internet era to be sort of unimportant, you know, in comparison to great interventions of the past like you know cars or, or refrigeration time a turn like of the century type innovations right. like the light bulb and things the telephone that yeah. right yeah which are obviously very important sure of course but it's also a strangely dismissive thing to say that we got 140 characters because of course the the internet's not 140 characters that's just an arbitrary limit on one service that's not even the most popular service that provides one type of internet application uh, use case and if you really think about it, that particular thing, Twitter, which is what we're talking about, has, you know, toppled governments and, you know, uh, brought shame to politicians and done all kinds of powerful things just, right. just with its 140 character limit. So even if you're, even if you acknowledge that, even if you pretend for a moment that all of the internet is Twitter, Twitter is still, I think, a very powerful thing. Well, and it's worth asking the question, you know, what is like worth more in terms of progress like do we want flying cars or do we want an expansive social network that allows everybody to share and to me the second thing is obviously more valuable clearly more valuable Uh, even though the first one uh is really cool to see in science fiction movies especially of the past which i think a lot of this perspective seems to originate from right disappointment that the jetsons didn't come yes, true sort right. of 50s era uh sci-fi predictions yeah. that we're going to have moon vacations yeah um and, and jetpacks right it's there's a you talk a lot about people being disappointed they don't have jetpacks right, right? that's the classic thing where's my jetpack right. uh, well we have jetpacks now yeah martin makes a jetpack right there's a jetpack you can buy it's a little bit more expensive than a fancy car nobody wants it it's absurd it's a completely useless device because you, you know, our brains can barely drive cars. We don't need a third dimension. And also, it's like, it seems like an extremely dangerous type of motorcycle. It's like, you got nothing around you. If I'm going to fly, I want a plane where there are parachutes and life vests right. <laughs> around and, me. And, and of course, you know, and when it comes to flying cars, I mean, we have flying buses, which are called airplanes. Yeah. And we have professional pilots and really, mostly computers to drive really, them Really, a flying car is just a small aircraft. And we have those, too. They're just not very fuel efficient, and they're really hard to fly. And the people who do fly them, rich people, often die in them. So if we really want flying cars, what we need to do is get working on self-driving cars, because the only way we'll ever have flying cars is to have computer-driven flying cars. And this point generalizes to just say that the kinds of things we think we're going to want are not necessarily the things that we actually get. 
And they're not necessarily even the things that we should have wanted in the first place. Because right. I think that the progress we have gotten, I think the, the extent of the network, which is not well predicted by most science fiction of the past. Right. Most, right. you know, the even Jetsons. Even when we were building the internet, we didn't know the internet was going to be the internet. I mean, right. The we, Jetsons did not have the internet. No, they don't. They have, you know, video phones, but they don't have text messages, which people use a lot more than video phones, because as it turns out, convenient, low attention messaging is more important than being able to see somebody through a screen while you talk to them. You don't want to necessarily brush your hair every time you take a phone call. Right. So, and, and these are just different failures of prediction. When you're in the past, you're thinking about how things can be better from that perspective. And cars were a big improvement over horse and buggy, so people thought, well, maybe we'll just imp keep improving cars. But as it turned out, transportation hasn't improved all that much since that time, but communication has improved so much that it started to take some of transportation's lunch. And it's really become transportation in a way. I can telecommute to work through a computer or I can, you know, whatever. There's a ton of examples of that sort of thing. Yes, and I think that really summarizes it. We got communication instead of transportation. And, you know, we'll see. We may get the transportation side of this later. Self-driving cars are an aspect of that. That's true. But I think Elon that... Elon Musk's Hyperloop might turn out to be real. Possibly, but... <laughs> Doesn't uh, seem likely, well, though, I, does it? I mean, you know, whether or not that will actually come to pass, I'm not Could sure. Could be something else, obviously. But, uh, you know, it, it's also possible that if you really game this out, that transportation is just not important. That, like, what we're actually doing is... And this is getting a little more far-fetched, but we might be, mm -hmm. you know, essentially just growing into the virtual space, sort of like what you might call like sort of growing inward into inner space, which is, I think, a term coined by John Smart, as opposed to actually exploring outward into outer space. Right. Words, well, and I think there's a real bias among certain people of a certain age group, particularly uh, against those inner experiences and for those outward experiences. There's a sense that in some way uh, those outward experiences are more real. Uh, and I think if you uh, talk to young people, our age or younger, I... I get the sense that uh, that's not a cultural value for them. Um, right. If you could take a virtual moon, moon vacation that, in, for all intents and purposes, was identical to an actual moon vacation, would you actually take the risk had, of going to the moon? Right. Like, we had no risk of dying in that one. So, yeah, it's clearly a better experience if, if it's really identical in, in every way. And, yeah. and I think there's probably a point at which it's not yet identical in every way and it's still a better experience because you can't die and it's right. cheaper and whatever else. And so, also, just to lay the basic groundwork for progress, it would make sense to build a global communications grid to connect everybody on the planet, maybe, say, before you go beyond the planet. Uh, that does seem like a reasonable step, yes. Like, that order seems to make sense in retrospect. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's, yeah, and it's funny that we used to imagine, like, whole far-flung space universes where there was basically no communication, even on planets, much less from planet to planet. Uh, but anyway, the point here is just that a subjective argument about whether technology is accelerating or not doesn't really get you much further than how you feel. So we feel that it's it's accelerating. Other people don't feel that way. There's nothing much more we can say about that. So we thought we'd try to find some kind of an empirical, you know, something we can count or measure to to prove this point. So that takes us into the empirical side of this, or what turns out to be the attempted empirical, <laughs> empirical side, because there's... Not an easy way to measure how much technological progress a society is making. Right, it's no semantic really fast. Like, what's technology and what's progress in technology are really hard questions to answer. Right. 
And even the the people who we were saying making subjective arguments like Peter Thiel do in fact have an empirical component to how they make their case. And so one of the starting points for people in trying to measure technological progress is to use traditional economic measures. Right. One that gets brought up a lot is the uh, median income, mm-hmm. which many people have pointed out has been stagnating uh, since the 70s. And that's pretty uncontroversial. We certainly don't disagree with that. We just don't think that's necessarily a measure of technological progress. It's Yeah, it's mediated through several things. I mean, one of the people who writes about this says that it's a measure of how well the ideas we're coming up with are benefiting the average person. But I feel like the average person does so much work in that sentence because these things that we're coming up with are benefiting people. Um, Whether they're benefiting the average person like monetarily or not is, I think, highly abstract from from whether they're of cultural value. Right, because these very virtual products that are being produced, say, on the network that are just essentially just digital files, many of them are produced by amateurs. For example, if you go on a forum and you get or look at a YouTube tutorial and you get a ton of useful information, yes, there's ads being sold on the side maybe, but the, the amount of money changing hands is not a lot. It's not that significant. And so a lot of the benefits that we're getting are not necessarily appearing on normal economic measures. Um, right. It's not that they couldn't possibly be measured in some more advanced way, but... Uh, most but just by counting money output, you're not going to count a lot of this stuff because, you know, if I create some data, some knowledge, like on a forum or if I make a song or something, I put it online and you download the song, listen to it, and you like it, then some value has been created, but no money's changed hands. And uh, that's why basically these traditional econometric methods for measuring technological progress, whether it's median income or whether it's a more complicated productivity factor sort of thing, they just, they fail because they're totally tied to product being equal to monetary uh, output. So if it's not making you more money, if it's not making your company more money or you individually as a worker more money, it's not considered a productive idea. Right. Which becomes, you know, an, an alternate uh, possibility for why the median wage might be stagnating. Not that technology is stagnating, but that, in fact, technology is accelerating so fast, but the, those benefits of that technology are not being shared equally. Right. And that's an idea that's put forth by uh, Eric Brynjolfsson and Andrew McAfee, among other people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, which story do you believe? Right, and those are basically two sides of this argument uh, who are using essentially the same exact metric to prove their point. You know, one of them saying almost the opposite of the other. And it, it does feel to me like it's a little bit of a political argument at that point. You know, we don't really have a lot of interest in politics. We're just more curious about like, well, what's actually well, happening, at least, right? At least for the purposes of today, we're just trying to ask an apolitical question right. of if you take the entire world, not one country, not the poor, not the rich, but you take the entire world yeah. as a system... Uh, so, yeah. Is the technology of that world increasing? Right. Uh, at is a, humanity, the whole world's worth of it, uh, right. accelerating its technological progress? That's the question we're trying to answer, and we're not really interested at, for the moment in political consequences. We just want to look at that question. Um, so another way that people have done this right is by counting different kinds of stuff, right? Like counting patents, for example, or counting uh, historically relevant technological milestones as determined by, you know, groups of academics. And, you know, these are kind of obviously problematic, right? I mean, we can show examples that, again, prove opposite points. There are some 
lists of technological achievements that show a slowdown in technological right. achievement after the uh, Industrial Revolution. And there are other lists, like the one compiled by Ray Kurzweil, that show uh, a speed up. So it's it seems to me like no counting of lists is ever going to work because there are so many complicated biases uh, at work there. Uh, the patent office is clearly biased by you know what patent what law says is patentable and what legal norms say are patentable. The uh, the academics who are counting these things, God knows what their criteria were. Well, it's very difficult to determine what is an important technological event. So some things are yes. obviously seem like they should be important events, right. like the light bulb. Right. Like most fire. people would yeah. probably agree about certain things like that. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you quickly get into this sort of like issue of demarcating, you know, one innovation from another. And because all of these technological advances inevitably build on other ones, um, it's very hard to say, like, okay, this is where one idea starts and this is where the next idea begins. Like, right. what is Well, demarcating the beginning and end of an idea is really hard and it's gotten harder and harder um, as more and more things have just been iterations of the idea of, like, doing something with software in a computer. We don't know what the fundamental unit of technology is. So we, it, just right. like the economic measures, we feel that by counting historical events, you can pretty much stack the deck uh, in favor of whatever perspective you want to say. One technological thing, though, that exists that we both think can sort of stand in for technological progress as a whole is the power of computing itself, right? And there's a reason for that, which is that computing is like a universal basic technology. It can do basically all of math, so it can kind of do anything, at least in a simulation. Right. Uh, So we don't treat... Um, our, our perspective, and, I, and this is certainly not unique to us, but many people feel this way. Like a computer obviously is not an appliance or a new technology on the level of like a flush toilet it's or like a penicillin or a refrigerator. Right. right. It, because, I mean, one definition of technology is technology are tools that fulfill useful functions. And right. as a tool, the computer fulfills so many functions and seems to be fulfilling more and more functions every day. And well, and its fundamental property is to be a a function learning machine. Right. It, uh, as, as opposed to basically every machine before it, which were all function-specific machines. Right. So you buy a new computer in the form of a smartphone, and then you download apps. And every time you download an app, you're just adding a new function. So it's, it's just an ultimate multi-purpose tool. Mm-hmm. And it you know, seems to be swallowing up all the other tools, at least in my life. This is now speaking anecdotally, and mm-hmm. I'm sure most of you have experienced this. Um, so many objects that I used to own, whether they were compact discs, whether they were calculators, digital cameras, some cases even art supplies, uh, musical instruments, uh, calendars, filing cabinets, uh, watches. I mean, the list goes on of things that you now can just replace essentially with the computer. Yeah. On that also, you know, typewriters and pasteboards and mixing consoles. And- right. God, there's just, yeah, there's an it, endless number of it's things. It's so easy to just keep going. Yeah. Uh, but we're not going to do that. So <laughs> a computer, I mean, it potentially, I mean, if if you accept this idea that it's swallowing up all of the other tools that we have, then you might be able to use computers as kind of a stand-in for all tools. And that obviously wouldn't apply if you go far enough back in history. Um, the computers, as we know it, is not really that old. Right. Um, I mean, we're looking at this from the advent of digital computing, since it gets really confusing if you start 
thinking about mechanical relays and things like that. So when it comes to empirical measures, uh, we feel like actually measuring computing power is getting a lot closer to doing a good job of measuring technology today than either economic measures uh, that are based on revenue or you know, by counting actual historical events. Right. Well, and because it's a lot less history, it clearly has less, you know, proven predictive power than, say, looking at economic history, which has been going on a lot longer. But I think it's more relevant, actually, in this case, uh, because of the importance of the special importance of the computer uh, itself. And so when we look at uh, the the trends in computing, uh, I mean, this is very well known. I'm sure everybody listening knows this. What we find is that it follows more or less uh, Moore's law, which is the observation by Gordon Moore um, in the late 60s that basically the power of a given size of uh, silicon at a, a certain cost will double every 18 months to two years. And and that does seem to have more or less held with, with very small amounts of, of variation up until the present moment. Yes, and one of the things that uh, Ray Kurzweil contributes to this discussion is that he then takes that uh, sort of exponential paradigm and applies it more broadly to all kinds of other uh, measures of computing power aside from the much more narrow Moore's Law. Right, because if you look at it, you'll see that RAM capacities and speeds, the SSD capacities and speeds, the price of a terabyte of storage, et cetera, et cetera, these things all follow the same or similar curve. Why maybe that might not be a perfect metric is the design of software. Right, so this is a potential bottleneck where maybe you have all of the hardware power in the world, but if you don't know how to harness it by writing the right algorithms, then progress may not proceed at the rate that the hardware is proceeding. Right. And there's been, you know, a lot of concern from people within the software writing community that as languages get more abstract and as computers get more powerful, that uh, there's less impetus to write good code and just people get away with writing sort of crappy code that might eventually become a problem. Or at least that's a theory that I've heard espoused. So, I mean, this is a very real concern. I don't think that we've seen it. To date, I think as far as I know, the studies that have actually been done on this show that software is also improving right along with hardware. That's the, the most recent study that I saw showed that what was happening was that the algorithm quality was going up as the hardware got better because the possible space of algorithms to search was going up. And so people were finding new, better algorithms that they wouldn't have been able to find right. uh, just a generation previous. But it is a plausible criticism. It might be a bottleneck we run into in the future, so we should mention it. And then another thing that, that might be a potential bottleneck that we should at least mention, although personally I'm not that worried about this one, is energy. And energy is like a real problem in our world today, obviously, but I really think uh, solar energy is, gonna, is going to solve this problem. Uh, that's another technology that's been seeing exponential growth so far. And this year, they proved photovoltaic cells in the lab, I believe, if I remember correctly, that were uh, uh, reaching the energy density of gasoline. So we're getting to a point where you can actually use this stuff as soon as we figure out storage. Right. But, you know, again, we're not totally sure how that's going to play out. No, and storage is a huge problem. We don't know. Lithium ion is, we're at the bottom of the, you know, atomic barrel there as far as there are no smaller metals. So... Uh, chemically, you can't make better batteries than lithium. We're going to have to figure out a whole new paradigm for batteries. Right. So at this point, I think we'll move on now. We've talked about the subjective argument, how we feel technology is accelerating. We've talked about the empirical argument, how we think that computing power growing exponentially is a, actually a reasonably good predictor of 
technological progress. Yeah, but really but all these empirical measures are really flawed. Yes. And the, but so we're going to move on to the third one, which yeah. I think the two of us at least find the most convincing, which is more of a logical argument, which essentially talks about technology as being a feedback loop. Right. Um, it's just the abstract nature of technology itself. Like we said, you know, what is technology? A common definition of it is tools and knowledge of tools, right? That fulfill that perform functions. functions. Yeah. Right. So as we, if we think about it that way and we describe, you know, what are the things that allow you to create tools and create knowledge of tools that will, that will fulfill functions? And there's a list of inputs that we, uh, that we came up with. Right. right. And, and no list is going to be complete. But some of the things that uh, allow for technological progress, uh, we'll go through a list. Um, one of them is people itself, obviously. Sure, people solve problems. Right, you need people to actually invent the tools. Sure. Right, so that's a raw input. Obviously. Uh, another one would be uh, education. Right. Uh, those people need to know what they're doing. Um, so that would be important. Well, they can invent some tools probably without knowing what they're doing, but the more they know, the more tools they can invent. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you need time. Um, and that would be specifically time that's not, you know, spent just trying to survive. Right. So uh, you need, you know, time to actually focus on inventing mm -hmm. as opposed to scraping by. Yep. You need uh, access to previous innovations to build on. Right. So recorded knowledge. Right. You need to be able to look up uh, what other people have learned or figured out around the world and use that to base your new inventions on. Right. And the final thing is that you need previous inventions themselves. And this is actually really the key thing because... The inventions of yesterday help you build the tools of tomorrow. So yesterday you invented an axe, and today you're chopping down a tree and cutting the log into wheels. And today that essentially means you're using computers to design new computers. And today's yeah, today's <laughs> example obviously is is that yesterday you know last year's computer is the only computer fast enough to use to design this year's computer. This list of things, these are all things that one can argue are the supply of these things is increasing. Right. Or it has been increasing. It for increases some time. as a result of technology, specifically, not just because we have good luck or something. But when you have a technology that you know makes us more food, then we have more people and more time. If you invent a technology that saves people time, then they can spend that time learning, spend the time working. You know, and, and of course, the previous inventions themselves are sort of they they naturally do this. They're they're available as soon as you create them. That's what those they are. are by definition growing. I mean, right. technology makes more technology which makes more technology, which makes more technology. I mean, right. that's this. That's just tautological, basically, yeah. yeah. Um, and then, of course, the access to the previous innovations increases, too. So we no longer have a world where, you know, you can have these tremendous technological advances in Asia that don't reach Europe, say. Right. I mean, today, if something's Today's invented... Today's world it, has fixed that, where we have a global communications network, which is a series of technological innovations. And because of that, uh, if I invent something... Uh, here in California, um, and because of the distributed platforms we have all over the world, I can not only tell people about it, but actually have them running it, if it's software, pretty much instantaneously all around the world. And so, so it just seems, stands to reason that if you have more people talking to more other people with more education, more time, more communication, and more, and more access yeah. to previous tools, yeah. that this would, you know, through combinatorial explosion, essentially create a, you know, a accelerating increase in technological capability. Again, there are defeaters to this argument as well. Right. But to me, that makes a lot of sense, right. and it and it seems to to jive with what at least what we seem to be. Well, and just to play devil's advocate, uh, the main sort of argument against that position is that the possibility space for useful, powerful, 
good ideas has been shrinking, essentially. And I, I'm not sure that I even buy that. I look around at the world and I see a lot of problems I think ne need solving. I don't think that we're anywhere near um, done with uh, what you'd call lo low-hanging fruit of, of technological innovation. But even if I'm wrong about that and penicillin uh, and uh, refrigeration have, you know, have just been so impactful around the world that really we can never um, reach that level of impact again. I think we should problematize this idea that as uh, more and more technology gets built, the, the good technology is going to be harder and harder to figure out um, and locate. And it could be getting harder to come up with new good ideas as long as it's not getting harder faster than we're getting good at searching for those new ideas. Right. The world that they, I guess they're positing here, if they're thinking all the way through this, is that it's getting so much harder so f rapidly. It's, it's exponentially harder to find good ideas now than it was in the 70s, let's say. I, I, I personally just don't buy that. I don't know. To me, that just doesn't, that doesn't feel right. Um, but uh, I think it's fair to, to mention it as a point because uh, I've, I've seen it made uh, by intelligent people. Okay, so, so putting all this together, we've problematized things, but we actually, I think, do both subscribe more or less to the idea that uh, technology is most likely accelerating. And what, how that actually affects you know, us and ordinary people is you know, we might see a lot more change than you would normally think. So again, if you're making a major life decision, right, uh, right. starting a new career, you might want to think about how is the technological environment going to dramatically change that by the time you get done with that degree or uh, by the time that kid you had reaches 10 years old or by the time you start advancing in that career or whatever it is you're thinking of doing. Right. And, and I think, you know, the thing you have to keep in mind here is that your mind, and this is all of us, is very much set on a linear view of the world. And that's very logical because most of the things in your day-to-day -day life are linear. If uh, you drop a glass and it breaks today, then when you drop a glass, it'll break tomorrow. And that's the way you see the world. But I think we have to constantly shock ourselves and do thought experiments to try to get ourselves out of that worldview because it does appear, at least you know, to us, and we recognize this isn't something you can prove 100%, but uh, we do think it's plausible enough that it should be considered that uh, the world might be really different, at least from a technological point of view, in, in just a short amount of time, in two, four, eight years. So as you embark on, you know, whatever it is you're embarking on, I, I always try to imagine what's my linear assumption of what the world's going to be like, and then try to really f imagine a far-flung version right. of the future and, and make sure all my, my decisions make sense still. Right, and I feel like a really specific example maybe that we can just use to just really explain this clearly sure. would be say like putting away money for a retirement fund right um would be something where you're forgoing pleasure or enjoyment now mm -hmm. uh money that you could be spending maybe even to improve yourself right and then you're putting that away on the assumption that uh sort of in a linear fashion things are going to be more or less how they were you're going to need money to survive you're going to grow old and die and things are going to follow a particular path and some of the more extreme technological predictions that are made by people in the field would suggest that that actually wouldn't even necessarily make sense. Right. Depending um, on your age, if you're in your 20s, let's say now, and you subscribe to this idea that we're going to have, you know, uh, radical life extension in 25 or 30 years, then you should expect to work, you know, long past your 60s. Um, 
so retiring may not be in your future. But then again, or I mean, you may be into forced retirement. Yeah, we may all be retiring very soon, far before we're we're in our sixties. Because I think you know something that doesn't get discussed a lot that we'll talk a lot about here is that uh, work in the traditional sense, where you uh, use your physical or mental labor to get money in order to eat food and live is a system that may or may not survive the coming wave of of automation of services that's and happening those are two radically divergent views right there yeah uh, one in which uh <laughs> everybody is into forced retirement and one in which everybody nobody ever retires and continues like working you know yeah. almost indefinitely well and both of those could be true on on uh, on an experiential level of course how how the society is going to react is is very much up in the air but when you think about the technological progress it's very easy to come up with these divergent possibilities and a lot of those even more radical things sometimes seem just as plausible if not more plausible than the more traditional oh well it's just going to be business as usual right, for the well, next 100 years yeah i mean cuz that's not plausible at all it's so different now than even the 80s i feel like when i was a kid if it's even just gets that different again in the next 30 years, that's going to be pretty different. And since no one can really predict this stuff super well, I feel like if you buy the general idea that things are changing quickly, then you just simply probably don't want to commit yourself to things that are 20 years out. You know what I mean? You want to commit yourself to things that are three to five years out. Yeah, or you, and you just want to have be able to, to pivot. Be, yeah, you have to be able to reevaluate yeah. as much and as often as you can. Uh, so I think that's probably a good place to end. Okay, yeah, that's uh, that's great. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with a talk about uh, technological unemployment. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.